You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please remain standing for the reading of the sermon text this morning. It's from Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, a good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jason. Uh, That was great singing. Uh, I love that. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's been a joy. I've been looked after by Jason and Dale and their families. And 
Uh, really enjoyed getting to, to know this area uh, and learning about it. And we've realized things are a lot bigger here than they are in Ireland. Uh, they took me to the mall. Uh, it's some size, I will tell you. Yeah, everything is a bit bigger here. Things are smaller in Ireland. The stores, the cars, the roads, the houses, the people. I'm actually a giant in Ireland, uh, well not really, but uh, it is uh, really great to, to be here and uh, I hope you can understand me okay. My wife, as you saw, is from the, the States originally uh, and I did uh, manage to go way above my league in getting her, as you can tell, uh, punched above my weight, uh, but she sent a sermon to her dad. Uh, whenever we were starting dating, to say, oh, this is who I'm dating, this is, he, he, he does some preaching. He stopped after three minutes because he thought I was speaking another language, Irish. Uh, so I hope that's not the, the case here this morning. But it is a privilege to be here, and it's actually humbling to meet with your leaders who are concerned about the nations, uh, God's kingdom as a whole throughout the world. It, it is quite humbling. It's uh, good for me to learn, and it's a great example of you. You've got good leaders here that aren't just concerned about building their own little kingdom here, but God's kingdom as a whole. Uh, so it's been a privilege to be here. We're looking at Daniel chapter 1. If you'd like to open that and follow along, because it is an unusual book, different sorts of literature. Uh, we're looking at this subject, Christian living in a post-Christian culture. And 1 Corinthians 10 says, these things are written as an example to us, but I think there's more going on than just an example here. So let me pray. Let us pray together and ask for God's help as we look at Daniel chapter 1. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the unity that we have in Christ. Thank you that we have the privilege to open it. And as we gather this morning, may we hear your voice. We are dependent on you completely. May you be magnified as we hear from you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Ireland is kind of known and the Irish people for being fighters, boxers, and drinkers. Those two things. We've got people like Conor McGregor, uh, Katie Taylor. Uh, the medals that we won in the Olympics are only boxing ones. Uh, and then we're renowned for celebrating afterwards. Even if we lose, any excuse, win or lose, they'll turn to drink. So we're known as fighters and drinkers. And Ireland as a country... Uh, it can be a, actually a problem, the, the drinking culture. One, one Christmas uh, in Ireland and Dublin, uh, there was heavy snow. Uh, it doesn't always happen, so Ireland can't cope whenever there's a half an inch of snow. The, the whole country shuts down. Uh, and we decided there was a, a, a lot of snow in the driveway, and all the men from the streets went out to shovel, uh, clear the streets. Uh, and of course, after a hard 20 minutes work, 
they decided it's time to go to the pub. They have earned this. Uh, any excuse. So I, I decided to go with them. This would be a good chance to get to know these guys and, and spend time with them and engage with them. And that was all very well and good. But of course, they were going to be there for the whole evening. And they had started drinking at 6 or 7 o'clock. And that was going to be interesting for me. And so I decided after, yeah, I can't take another drink. I'm going to switch to a Coke. Well, boy, did I get stick from a bunch of men in their 40s. And they were my neighbors, and they, they knew what I did, and they said, I go on, take another drink. And I was like, no, no, can't do that. And they said, go on, we'll, we'll not tell the church. We'll, we'll not let them know. They'll never find out. Shocking. And that was me. It was kind of embarrassing. It's not easy. And I, you know, we don't like, I don't like being different. You want to fit in. But if you're not getting drunk in Ireland, you're actually seen to be different. And I was in a, a real minority. I was the odd one out at that time. You see, living as a Christian, when you're in the minority, it's not easy. That could be your circumstances. It, it can be hard. And some of you may wonder, whenever it's hard and if you're in the minority, is it worth it? Putting up with that sort of stick. It's not easy if you're living in a culture that doesn't care about God. And the reality is that is the situation that we have in Ireland. It is turning towards secularism. It was never worshiping the one true God in the right way anyway. It was a religious country. But now we've embraced atheism, secularism. The culture is post-Christian. Well, it was never truly Christian. But I've been hearing that your culture is similar, heading in that direction, especially here, Minneapolis, Minnesota. I mean, if you're to hold Christian morals and sexual ethics, if you're pro-life, if you're now seen, I've been told, as intolerant, a bigot, and that means it can be tricky to live as a Christian when you're in the minority, an exile, out of place. So how do we respond? How are, how are we supposed to live? How are we to live in a culture that is hostile to the gospel? How are we to remain faithful to God, surrounded by people that reject Him? That is actually the circumstances you have here in the book of Daniel. So if you look and follow along in Daniel chapter 1, we see their circumstances in verse 1 and 2. He tells us it was the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So this is around the year 605 BC. And it's talking about the land of Judah being besieged by Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And Jerusalem was no match for the mighty Babylon. It was like Muhammad Ali against me. No chance. And as we read in verse 2, they, they actually took the temple vessels and brought them to the temple in Babylon. And that was a very purposeful statement to basically go, our gods are better than yours. And then we read in verses 3 and 4, they took this group of captives. You'll be familiar. Daniel and his friends are 
taken as captives, wrenched from home. By the way, they were probably mid to late teens, young, taken to a foreign nation with foreign gods. So I want you to picture the scene. If you were one of those people taken captive, wrenched from your home, you'd have questions. You'd be wondering, on that long walk to Babylon, where is God? Where is God in all this? How can God let this happen? We're his special people. And they're taken off to this pagan culture that worshipped other gods. So how were they to live faithfully to God in this pagan culture, in a culture that did not care about the one true God? Well, these are lessons we can learn. Because what happened? Well, what did the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, do? Well, he had this strategy, this tactic, and it involved, as verse 4 said, taking youths without blemish of good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, and he wanted to teach them, it says, with the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And he assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were educated for three years. And at the end of time, they were to stand before the king. So the, his strategy was to choose basically an elite, an elite group of guys who had brains and brawn. These young men were selected for their learning and their looks. They were clever and good looking. Apparently, they do exist, ladies. I, I'm not sure where, but they do. That's what the text says. These were good-looking guys who were very clever. And they were to get the best, and they were to groom them for serving in Babylon. They were basically to undergo a Babylonian makeover because he wanted the best apprentices. I'm sure some would be fired, but they were enrolled in this three-year training course at the University of Babylon, learning Babylonian wisdom, culture. So how were they to live? They would actually come across, I'm sure, some very tricky, ethical, moral, difficult scenarios, decisions. To enroll in this culture would mean that they would have had to learn things that, let's be honest, would be quite contrary to what the Bible taught, their Old Testament the Babylonian literature would have had mythological texts, astronomy, would have included magic, occult studies, knowledge that in one sense was forbidden in Israel. So what were they to do? This was no Christian college. Much of what is taught would have been spiritually suspect. They were challenged with a new identity. How did they respond? Did they say no to everything? Before we see that, we must realize they actually said yes to a lot of things. Sometimes we can forget that. Why did I say that? Well, among these, it says, verse 6, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the tribe of Judah. These four guys are enrolled, learning things that would not have been biblically accurate. They said yes to that. They didn't say no. They, they, they partook. What else happened in verse 7? The chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, and so on. Why is that important? Well, the king of Babylon, he wanted to change their whole identity. Their names all had God in their meanings. Daniel means God is my judge. Shadrach or Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. 
and they got changed to Belteshazzar, which was related to Bel Marduk, protect his life, a foreign god. Shadrach means the command of Aku, who was a moon god. They gave up their God-fearing names and took on names related to pagan gods. That is kind of shocking, by the way. They agreed to do that. Be like having your name, if you have a good Christian name, changed to Muhammad, Buddha. And they were indoctrinated in Babylonian culture, and they said, okay, yes. There's some things we can learn from this. We need to be engaged. Be engaged in the culture. Don't withdraw. They could have said no to this education, but they didn't. They could have said no to pagan names, names related to their faith. We can't lose that. But they didn't. They actually said yes to a number of things. They said yes to a political career under a pagan king. What do we learn from this? We can be involved in the world, in the culture, a post-Christian culture, as long as we're not sinning and going against God's Word. It's good to be involved in our culture and places where people chat, relate, involved in colleges and different realms, in the politics and in arts. And we aren't just to be involved for evangelism purposes, and yet we must but to live a life that glorifies God in that world. We use our talents in the world. We, d- we don't withdraw. We, we're engaged. By the way, some of that does mean some decisions aren't straightforward. There's gray areas. And you shouldn't go against your conscience. And you have to think hard about this and what is God honoring and give you a flavor and something we've had to think about. Our kids do attend our local, it is a public school, but it's linked to the the Roman Catholic Church because all the the schools nearly are, although there's more other ones arising now with the rise of secularism. So they attend Holy Rosary National School. And we're blessed that they still teach traditional morals. And we're very happy to have them there. But they do, and even just last week, Abby came back, my eight-year-old, and said, they did some things today. They said, uh, we can pray to angels and the saints. And we engage with Abby. Is that what the Bible says? And she goes, no, and that's why she told us. And we have to sit down and go, well, what's true from the Bible and what's not? Now, your context is going to be different from mine, and, and you should not compromise and go against your conscience. But being involved in the culture around you is not necessarily wrong. Be engaged. Be involved. Don't withdraw in the holy huddle. What else do we learn? Well, we're clearly, and here's the other thing, we're clearly to be different and not compromise, because that's what we see about Daniel and his friends in verse 8. Be different, don't compromise, because Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. That's a key verse. This is where he goes, I can't compromise in this. 
enough is enough. It was a thoughtful process. He was resolving this, which meant he was not going to make himself impure, defile himself with this royal food and wine. Now, why this in particular? It's actually harder to know for definite. Some think it could be that the meats included unclean meats that were off limits for Israelites in the Levitical laws. Now, that could be the case, but it doesn't actually tell us why he rejected the wine. Secondly, maybe some people think it, that the food may have been offered to idols, which could have been the case before taken to the king's table. And yet we don't know for sure because maybe the vegetables would have been offered as well. Or it could be that they were sharing this meal at the king's table and it was really seen that they were uniting with the Babylonians and everything and this was just one step too far. We can't know for sure which it is, but clearly for Daniel and his friends, this was wrong, and their conscience would not allow it. This was a step too far. He, he recognized that, that if Babylon got into them, the show was over. So he knew he had to draw a line. So they wouldn't get completely squeezed into the Babylonian mold. To him, this was a clear no. By the way, that would not have been easy. The pressure. Even as the story unfolds, the official came back to him in verse 10. I don't know if you saw that. And he said, the official said, but the king has assigned your food and drink. And if you refuse and if you look worse than the other guys, I'm going to get the blame. My life is going to be at risk, he's basically saying. So Daniel in verses 12 and 13 says, test us. See who looks best after the 10 days. Give us some of the veggies and water. And then compare. And what happens? Well, verse 15 to 16, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance. They passed the test than the rest. And so they gave them the food, the vegetables to drink and to eat and the water to drink. It took guts. Maybe their lives could even have been at risk in making this hard decision. And I'm sure the food would have tasted better. Juicy steaks. I enjoyed Twin City grill steaks the other day. This, they said no. For them, this was against God's word. And they drew the line and they were seen to be different. Again, we can learn the principles. How do we live in a pagan culture, in a post-Christian culture? We need to be different. And don't compromise. We're to be engaged, don't withdraw, but we're to be different, don't compromise. Because we are exiles in a land also. That's what we're like in Ireland, that's for sure. And that's what I'm hearing you are. And if you're a Christian, you need to be different. Some of this came to head in Ireland actually just recently. Last year, in 2018, Ireland voted to allow abortion. 66% of the country voted to bring it in with very liberal laws. In Dublin, where I live, 75% voted for abortion. Were we to remain quiet in this area, or was too much at stake? Well, we as a church, we spoke out, we made a stand. Many individuals in our church, a lot of the younger generation, which was actually very encouraging, they, they spoke out 
and they got serious abuse, especially online, from their peers. Even us, if I'm regarded as a slightly older generation, we were very careful to speak compassionately, share true stories, and yet whenever friends in the neighborhood saw us at school, they would look a little bit stranger around devoting time, avoided us. And I'm sure I could have done a lot better at saying and speaking out in many other ways. And yet amazingly, a few people from the neighborhood came up to us and Caroline and said, I'm so thankful that you said that, shared that, and spoke out. I can't. I'm scared to do that. But I'm actually against abortion also. And it led to great gospel opportunity. Why? Because the reality is we should be different in a culture that is anti-God. Kevin DeYoung says Christians cannot be tolerant of all things because God is not tolerant of all things. Another clear area is sexual ethics. If you're a Christian, you will be different in this area. Thinking of the young people here especially, I mean, when it comes to relationships and sex, if you're living as a Christian and if you're saying sexual activity is just for married people between a man and a woman, you won't seem just to be different. You'll be regarded as an utter weirdo and freak. The culture says swipe right, order sex like pizza. Anything goes. The Bible teaches an active sexual lifestyle outside of marriage is wrong. And God has good, wise purposes for that. When people go against us, it leads to mess, difficulties. But you're different if you hold to that. But young people, be different. Don't compromise. By the way, just an aside, we're talking about living as a Christian, and you may be here and think, that you become a Christian by obeying God. No, not absolutely not. We'd never be good enough. We are only forgiven by God through Jesus, what we've been singing about, through trusting in Him and His once and for all sacrifice. And then in response to His grace, we want to obey and be different. It's not to earn our salvation, but in response to His grace and what Jesus has done on the cross, we seek to be different. Like Daniel, who resolved to be pure, not to defile himself. Not be seen by what we watch on the internet and TV. If anything causes us to sin, resolve, don't watch it. Even popular shows like Game of Thrones, that was available for me to watch on the flight over here. I'm told it is nudity. If it does, it's pornography. It's wrong. And if we don't think so, Babylon has got into us. We've become desensitized. John Piper wrote in 12 questions to ask yourself before you watch Game of Thrones. He said, if we choose to endorse or embrace or enjoy or pursue impurity, we take a spear and ram it into Jesus' side Every time we do, he suffered to set us free from impurity. 
Christ died on the cross to set us free. We've been singing about it so we'd belong to him. So we'd be different. Exiles. Yet those might be the more obvious ways in the culture. What about the more subtle ways that the church is in danger of assimilating with the culture around us? What about the idols, money, comfort? You have two families, the same income. Would you know one is a Christian through the difference in what they spend their money on? If we were to check their wardrobes, how many pairs of shoes they have, are we different? Where's our treasure? Are we living as exiles waiting to get to the promised land? Or are we living for this land? What's our attitude when we receive money? Is it, who can I give it to? Or rather, what can I buy? I know I'm guilty and about worrying about these things too. Those are more subtle areas that we might need to draw the line and be different. For the children, there's children here. Maybe we need to accept we'll be different by not having all the latest gadgets, devices, Games, consoles, phones, because there's more important things. Have a question to parents? Would our teens, if they were captured like Daniel and his friends, taken to a foreign land, be willing to stand for Jesus? And is that reflected in the priorities of we want for them? of what we model to them. You're all here, but do we forgo church for a Sunday sports game? I sincerely hope we don't, considering Christians in other parts of the world today are risking their lives to gather together with God's people. Where do we draw the line to be different? Because Christians are to be different. If we're never different How will people actually be convinced of the gospel and that Jesus is our Lord? That's why we need to keep coming to church, by the way, not just to gather together socially, but we're to retreat. Dan Strange says it. It's like retreating to the army medical tent so that we get patched up after being involved in the battle before we get sent back out to it. Why? Because we need to come together to behold our God, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to have our consciences refined, our lenses polished so that we know what's not helpful. And we realize throughout the book of Daniel that Daniel knew his Bible. Daniel knew his God. And perhaps parents, we wouldn't be as worried about the culture around us affecting us, or we wouldn't be as fearful if we were more active in prioritizing teaching our kids God's Word, prioritizing church discipleship so they can discern for themselves what's right and wrong and know and delight in God themselves. So how do we live in the culture around us? increasingly post-Christian. We're to be engaged. You don't withdraw, but we are to be different. 
Don't compromise. Yet how, how are we going to be motivated to do that? I don't think we will unless we have a conviction that God is worth living for. Because is Daniel and his friends here, is it just a moral lesson to us? Certainly not, no. Why is that? Well, why were they exiled there in the first place? Yes, they disobeyed God as a nation, and yes, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had come in and captured them, but who was ultimately behind it? Look at verse 2. Did you see that? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Who was behind their capture? The Lord. The Lord gave. In the midst of this tragedy, God was behind it. You know, the, you'll read other history books that actually record some of the same empires mentioned in Daniel, but they won't record what's recorded here, that the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand, that God is behind history, that history is his story. Do you see how else God is behind everything? Did you look at verse 9? How did Daniel find favor in the eyes of the official, the eunuch? And God gave. Daniel, favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God gave again. He was even behind the chief of the eunuchs' thoughts. And the fact that these guys turned out healthier than the others wasn't because of a diet. It was that what God was granting them favor and health. And not only that, but why were Daniel and his friends more knowledgeable than the others? Was it just because they worked harder? Do you see the answer in verse 17? As for these four youths, lo and behold, similar phrase again, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. They outshone the other students, and it was God's doing. God gave knowledge. God did this. God working behind the scenes. You see, God is actually the hero in this event. So how are we going to be motivated to be different? We need to be convinced that God reigns. Be convinced that God is reigning over all. I'm sure the captives probably couldn't see it in the midst of it. God's hand behind it. Taken to a foreign land, wretched from their own country, in a land that worshipped other gods. How could that be good? Yet the Lord was in control. God was going to use it for good, for his purposes. You may be here, you may be going through a really tough time at the minute. You may be even tempted to pack in Christianity because life isn't going great. We're not promised a hassle-free life here. In fact, the opposite. But you need to be convinced that God is reigning. That God is in control. Even if we can't see it and, and don't know what is going on, I'm sure that's where they were. We need to hear that God is in control. In fact, we don't need to be riddled with fear regarding a liberal post-Christian culture. 
We don't need to despair. It's not taking God by surprise. He is in control. It was Corrie Ten Boom, who is a Christian, spent much of her time in a concentration camp, Ravensbrück concentration camp, who said, when the train goes through a tunnel and the world gets dark, do you jump out? Of course not. You sit still and trust the engineer to get you through. We need to know that God is in control. The engineer still controls the train. You may be finding yourself in a dark tunnel, in the middle of it. You may be worried about all that is going around you. It's very hard to grasp, but we need to be convinced that God reigns, that He is in control, and that we're to trust Him in the hardships, no matter what we're going through. The Lord's in control. He reigns. We also see that the Lord is faithful. We see that in verse 2 as well because God had made promises that if they were disobedient, they'd be removed from the land. In Deuteronomy and Leviticus, even over a hundred years previous when Isaiah was speaking to King Ezekiah in Isaiah 39, he actually said specifically that they would be carried off to Babylon as captives because God's word comes true. Because the Lord is faithful. We were learning that at Sunday school, at adult school here beforehand. God is faithful to His promises. Whether that be positive or negative. But it means we can trust Him. We need to be convinced that God is reigning, that the Lord is faithful. That means if you are a believer, that if you're trusting in Jesus alone, resting on Him and His sacrifice and following Him as Lord, you can know that you're forgiven, that you have complete assurance, that you're safe, that you're secure, that you have a future hope that we're only exiles passing through to the promised land. And we can know that because God's Word comes true. He is faithful. It's based on God's faithfulness. But it also means He is faithful to His promises of punishment, like He promised to Israel. He promised judgment if they didn't repent, and they didn't, and that's why they were taken captive. And if you continually reject God, if you don't give your life to Jesus as your King, and submit to Him and rely on Him alone to be your Savior, will you will face the punishment the judgment for rejecting Jesus, your king. And that's forever. That's not just 70 years of exile. And you may think, you know, from what I've learned today, living as a Christian sounds too tough. It's not worth it. Let me tell you, it most certainly is worth it. Be convinced God reigns. And he has graciously made a way for us to be forgiven through Jesus. So trust in him. Die to yourself because it's worth it. Maybe suffer now, but it's glory later. Lord's in control. The Lord's faithful. 
finally, we see the Lord brings victory. Where do I see that? In that very unusually placed verse at the end of this section, verse 21, it says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Why mention King Cyrus here? What's the point? Well, we're being opened and let in to this fascinating turnaround in the story. Why is it put there? Because King Cyrus was the king of Persia who, be, who began reigning 539 BC, and he led the Persian army to conquer and defeat Babylon after the 70 years of exile. And he's mentioned here specifically. Because you see the mighty Babylon, the, the enemy that looked to be winning, that looked to be having the victory at the beginning of the section, the man who destroys them is identified purposely. Because see, Israel were at the bottom, taken captive in verses 1 and 2. It looked as if the Lord was losing. I mean, do you remember even those temple vessels were brought to the Babylonian temple, and it looks as if the Babylonian gods are winning. By the end of the section, the winners at the beginning are going to be the defeated ones. And Daniel, God's servant, is outliving them all. So if in, it says, if in this boxing ring you've got Israel and they're like Rocky Balboa getting pummeled and pummeled on the floor, on the floor, time after time getting knocked, knocked, and then he comes back with his knockout punch, that's what verse 21 is saying. He's defeated. Cyrus is going to come in. The Lord is going to bring victory over Babylon through Cyrus, who's identified as God's servant also. Babylon, who, by the way, is the city that represents rebellion against God, the world in rejection against God, at the end of time, fallen, fallen, is Babylon the Great. The enemy that looks like is being victorious by the end of the text is going to be defeated. And Daniel, God's servant, outlives the enemy because God's people will continue when the rest are defeated because ultimately God's kingdom will be established forever. Is God worth obeying? Be convinced. God reigns. When we face difficulty, suffering, there is hope for the believer because the Lord brings victory. Because ultimately, Christ will win. The Lord will be victorious. Satan may look as if he is winning in various ways in the culture around us, but in reality, Christ has already won the battle. He defeated him on the cross, rose again triumphant from the dead, and one day will return to conquer and fully defeat the enemy. Is it worth living for him in this hostile world? In a world that is post-Christian? Be convinced God reigns. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure, and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance 
of nations. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. And glory be to Christ. Let's pray.